Last night. <laughs> yeah. Last night was uh, bad. 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 Yeah. Bad, oh my god. Right? Yeah. Well, it's such a bad thing to have done. Worst sex I think I've ever had, by far. Oh, so it was bad for you too. Yeah. I mean, it was just all elbows. I mean, how many times did her teeth clink? Uh, too many. Mm-hmm. Too many. You know? Too many. And you move your head a lot. Well, passion. None. Right? I know. I like right out of the gate when I took my top off and you actually said the the word gulp. I said it? You said, yeah. Out loud? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, mistake on my part. As bad as it was, you know, and it, it was bad. Um, okay. Really awful. I, uh, I would just, if there's an upside to any of this, it would be that I realize now what I have in Dan. Silver lining. So that's nice. Listen, I can't do this anymore. This, what we, so I just want to, if we could just close the deal, be done with it. And if it's okay with Dan, it's fine with me. So. Good. Okay. Okay. So I will come back and get my stuff when you're gone. Now I'm just getting to the door. I was born around anyway, so. friends and enemies. It's episode 74 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, in, our, in, in our mission here on TMK to analyze capitalism and technology, first and foremost, from the experiences and point of view of workers, we would be severely negligent if we ignored a crucial form of labor that people Uh, across the political and social spectrum, too often pretend does not exist. Unless, of course, they want to condemn it. And that that is sex work, right? So rather than like me and Ed trying to tell you about sex work, we're going to bring in someone who actually has that experience, right? And actually knows the industry way better than we do. So we are happy to be joined by Liara Rue, who is a sex worker, an activist, and an author of a new forthcoming book called uh, Whore of New York, Confessions of a Sinful Woman. Um, Liara, thank you for coming on TMK. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to join. Yeah. And so... I mean, in addition to uh, like you know actually being a sex worker and having that industry experience, you also lived and worked in Silicon Valley for a while, which is like you know that that is the perfect TMK intersection right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, uh, it really is. Um, I worked as a a programmer in tech at some terrible startup for like six months before deciding I really hated it and quitting to join the way less misogynic industry of sex. <laughs> <laughs> one, 
What got you to do the tech in the first place? Did you grow up in the Valley beforehand? Did you come from a background that was related to tech at all? Yeah, both of my parents actually were engineers. Um, So my dad and my mother both were doing basically electrical engineering. um, And my dad also did programming as well. Um, Mm. My mom actually also worked, worked in tech briefly and then had also decided to quit because it was really misogynistic. Um, and I didn't believe her <laughs> at the time. <laughs> um, I was just sort of like, no, I believe in the meritocracy. Right. Um, yeah. Little shithead. <laughs> and then I I tried it out myself and also had to tap out. If, if you can do it without naming the company, what was the thing, I guess, that made you leave in general? Was it just how unbearable the work was or the working conditions? Um, so the work itself is fine. I actually really love programming. Um, it's really satisfying uh, being able to solve problems uh, in that way for me. But um, I think just being around people that I, I look very young and at the time I looked even younger and I think people really just saw me as this young woman who didn't know what she was doing. And I kept getting shoehorned into doing things more like customer support instead of really being trained Mm. um, and taught about, you know, how to actually use the code base at the company that I was working at. Um, It was a very small startup. So I think stuff like that just ends up happening. I had a friend that was working as a dominatrix, very Bay Area, um, and she seemed way happier. So (laughs) (laughs) I just decided to to try it out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like very interesting to be like, you know, I left uh, one misogynistic industry to join a different industry that is way less misogynistic, right? From tech to sex work. And I feel like those those experiences are, are, are so common, maybe not jumping from tech work to sex work, but like women joining tech work and being like, oh, this sucks. Like people are really looking down on me or they're, yeah, they're like shoehorning me into these, these other roles that are not what I want to do. Um, you know, there, there's like been this, this, you know, growing body of memoirs, uh, about this from people like, you know, friend of the show, Wendy Liu, who wrote a great book, Abolish Silicon Valley, um, you know, Anna Wieners, Uncanny Valley, uh, is about this, right? Like, like, it seems like you definitely fit into this kind of growing, uh, group of, of, of women who are like, I, joined tech work because I believed in the meritocracy and I really liked these, you know, this problem solving aspect, but then was like driven out by the actual culture itself. Yeah. Yeah. And the culture is really toxic. I even feel bad for the men that are a part of it because they ultimately are suffering too. Um, and when I was escorting in the Bay area, um, a lot of my clients, uh, worked in tech either, um, as engineers or, uh, as executives. Um, and yeah, the engineers were not, you know, necessarily happy with it either. I mean, I think it's really toxic for everyone. Um, but I think it's definitely more bearable to, to be a man in the industry, um, and to just have to sort of deal with, you know, these shitty bros than, to be a woman and, you know, have all these assumptions made about you and 
uh, your abilities. Mm. From your experiences, do people just rationalize it, you know, in one way or another, rationalize the working conditions, rationalize how much they may hate their job or how much it, the gap between their expectation and the, the reality of um, working in the Valley? Yeah, I think there's a really, um, there's a really widespread of, you know, people that are super enthusiasts about the companies that they work for. I think especially um, people I know that moved to the Bay Area and immediately went to work at a large startup like Google or Facebook, um, they do such a good job sort of trapping their employees on their campuses um, and getting them really you know, reliant on them basically for everything, for socializing, for food, for transportation, um, that a lot of these people just have no idea that there's any kind of social life outside of work. Mm -hmm. Um, And they tend to be really enthusiastic about their jobs just because it's sort of like this like nanny state, you know, where all their needs are provided for. But they're, I mean, they're also they are really sad on a certain level. Like I had a lot of clients like that and they, there was this sort of like ennui, but they, they didn't seem to connect that to their job necessarily. It was more of like, Mm. Oh, I don't have a girlfriend or like, Oh, I don't, you know, have a family, Mm. like that sort of thing. Yeah. But not connecting. Okay. Like my social like life and reality, you know, is, is a consequence of my work conditions. Yeah. Like, you know, like they were trying to get all of their community essentially from a girlfriend almost instead of realizing Mm -hmm. that like, Oh, a part of a healthy social life is, you know, having community. That's not just people that you work with. It's like people like in your neighborhood and people, you know, that you, you do things with, you know, that you see throughout the week that you have mutual interests with, um, and Mm -hmm. having all of that be really utilized to keep you working as much as possible is really toxic. I do also have a lot of friends um, that are more self-aware about tech um, and really hate it and often are just like trying to save as much money as possible so that they can just get a plot of land somewhere and retire Mm -hmm. and like, you know, do something that they actually enjoy and not, uh, not have to keep working at one of these companies. But I mean, it's sort of sad, you know, I'll see a lot of them get sort of like roped into staying longer at companies because of these promises of equity, which eventually Mm -hmm. gets diluted or they do their best to make it worthless in whatever way. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I just saw uh, like on the news recently that the founder of TikTok, who's like a, you know, like a mid thirties billionaire is like, uh, like I'm retiring, like I'm done with this. Like I made my billions. Uh, it's really stressful. And he, and what he said is like, I just want to spend the rest of my life, like reading and meditating. Like, that's all I want to do. And I was like, yeah, man, that's what we all want to do. That's, 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 <laughs> yeah. that's the promise of communism right there. Socialism, right? It's like, we don't have to become a billionaire to be like, yeah, man, like I'm in my mid thirties. I did what I want to do. Now I just want to like, you know, rear cattle in the morning, read in the afternoon and critique after dinner. <laughs> Uh, 
like I'm really interested what the sex work industry is like in the valley and and because you were talking about um the way in which like a lot of these tech companies are these like campuses, right? And they kind of act like these nannies and they provide, you know, everything that people need so they never have to leave. Um, but at the same time, it, you've got me thinking that one of the things that we never really hear about these uh, tech companies providing or, or a base human need that they meet is sex, right? Because I mean, that is a base human need in addition mm-hmm. to food and sleep and water and friends, right? It, 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 sex is one of those. So like I've been studying, you know, Silicon Valley forever and I've been paying attention to, you know, the labor conditions and work there for a very long time. But you've you've got me realizing that I have never really heard anything about how do people have sex, right? Or what, what is the nature of sex work in the valley? Yeah, how 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 does that work? Like, I guess in like a broader sense, and then get into you know what what kind of relationships and types of clients um, did you have when you were there? Yeah, I would say sex work in uh, the Bay and the Valley is definitely super common. Um, I think because there are so many more men than women in the first place, Mm. I think uh, there's just, people are really thirsty for it. Um, And you hear guys complaining all the time, like they'll be trying to date on these dating apps and it's just really, really challenging. Um, Of course, women are complaining too, because like if you don't want to take, date like a certain tech archetype, it's basically impossible to find anyone. (laughs) (laughs) You have like three types of different like tech guys. And then if you're not into that, like you're really just fucked. Um, But But not literally fucked. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) Tragically, not literally fucked. (laughs) But yeah, I think, um, you know, even in other industries like, you know, finance or sales or something, um, you you would have like the company going to a strip club or something together as this sort of like, oh, like we're all going out and going to be like sexually titillated or whatever as a bonding experience. But you definitely don't have that in uh, Silicon Valley, which I do think is um, really interesting. You know, like there might be, you know, hot girls at parties, you know, doing like bottles or whatever. Um, but that's sort of the closest you get. It's like strip clubs in the Bay Area are actually pretty terrible to work at, uh, from what I've heard from most of my friends, because they're just not not really frequented in the same way. Um, mm-hmm. I think because of the type of person who's more likely to get into programming, um, you do see people that tend to be more interested in doing something more intimate and chill, <laughs> like hiring as an escort, because it just feels a little bit more like, you know, having an actual girlfriend, I think, which is what a lot of them are missing out on. Um, a lot of them just want to cuddle too, you know, which mm. is really sad. Like, I think there's a real lack of physical affection among, you know, programmers at work or whatever. Um, there's a lot of like professional cuddlers in the Bay Area too, I noticed. Are there startups that do professional cuddling? I know there there are people in groups that do it, but have they tried to do a startup for that yet? Oh yeah, there's definitely, um, I don't think there's an app, but there's like a website for sure uh, where people can post uh, ads for 
offering their services as a professional cuddler. Mm, I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that there's not a like cuddling as a service app, you know, called like cuddler yeah. without, without the vowels. Without the E. Yeah. yeah. I could see that. Yeah. I, I, you're, you're right. Like the more you talk about it, the more I'm like, yeah, like weirdly there, it, the, the Valley does seem to be simultaneously chased in this way. Um, but also like, I mean, we know that, uh, you know, the, the so horny, yes, right, very right. horny, very like objectifying women. Right. Like we see this constantly mm-hmm. in like the design, like the, you know, the pitches at TechCrunch or whatever. Right. That's like, you know, people are always coming out with that. I mean, even the, like the, uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg's origins of Facebook, right. The kind of like hot or not <laughs> mm-hmm. like that kind of yep. thing. So like you see that kind of like that, misogynistic objectification of women like encoded in the software but the culture itself seems weirdly chaste in that in that way that like like it's hard to think of a of a like wolf of wall street style thing happening at like google or something like that yeah yeah it definitely doesn't happen at google i think there are some startups that do have more of that culture but yeah for the most part it's like pretty uh at least for the employee level, it's pretty chaste. I do feel like the executives will have more of the like crazy sex party type deals, especially VC people, I think, who are, I guess, just a little more financy mm. in general. Does this also structure the type of way in which people do do sex work? Is it that there are certain arrangements in, or there are certain like apps or orgs or I guess like, you know, or just structures in general that uh, it, people use that are more prevalent or common, I guess, in the Silicon Valley than they would be elsewhere because of the fa- or because of these dynamics, because you have these campuses where the people are looking for a specific type of connection, specific type of sex work and the type of, you know, uh, places that are available to people who live in the area. So I think because uh, credit card processors um, and a lot of tech companies are really against sexual content. Um, It's especially hard to do it basically in their own backyard um, because I think they become aware of it pretty quickly. Um, So it really is cloistered to a few sites like Eros or Slixa or Seeking Arrangements, uh, usually for people who want to find in-person work. Of course, there's also uh, street-based sex work in San Francisco, Um, Mm -hmm. which I think now has been decriminalized, which is really cool. Um, But for a long time, that was a real uh, point of strife where, you know, people were basically trying to get people working on the street arrested. Um, And yeah, I would even, you know, have clients sort of talk shit to me about street-based sex work. And I would always, you know, have to sort of correct them and say, hey, you know, like... I'm also a hooker, you know, like at the end of the day, like I know you like want to think I'm better than them or whatever, but like the only thing that separates me from them is branding, you know, and Mm -hmm. the places we work, you know, we're both doing the same thing. So like if you're talking trash about them, it's going to make me feel bad. Yeah, I think that is really interesting. Maybe we can dive into that a little bit more. This kind of like like this hierarchy that people see in different types of sex work, right? So it's like, you know, like you were just saying, right? Like, because they're paying you to do something like a girlfriend experience or, you know, to to be an escort, right? Like they see that as, um, and because they're 
they're using your services, then they they're like, no, this is actually fine. This is this is legitimate. Versus like, yeah, be like someone that works on the street or works in a strip club, like looking down on that as somehow like trashy in some way. Yeah, yeah. I I used to refer to my branding as sort of like a like a free range hooker. <laughs> is what I would call it. Like, oh, don't worry. Like, I'm happy. You know, everything's ethical. You don't have to worry about, you know, whether or not like I'm in a bad situation or not. Um, which I think, you know, it is a lot of what they're looking for. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, you know, a lot of um, Silicon Valley people do have this sort of intense obsession with ethics, um, you know, around food and, you know, even like clothes that they buy, but then they don't necessarily want to confront how uh, the systems that they are creating are pushing people into situations where they're being taken advantage of, basically. The, uh, was it FOSTA Act kind of changed access people had? Being able to advertise for services, does that, has that limited your availability to be able to like advertise that way? Um, because of things like that, or is it, has that not changed where your standpoint is? I know like street level, it's become different because a lot of times they, you know, folks used like Craigslist and stuff like that. And mm-hmm. then since that was available, you know, that availability was taken away and then social media and things like that were limited as well Has like websites that are owned by like MindGeek or other things like that also kind of stepped in and become a mental person as well. I don't know if I've seen anyone doing more advertising on anywhere like MindGeek. Um, I, I think it's, yeah, it's not necessarily the venue for that usually. Um, I mean, most of their ads I think are, you know, like porn games or whatever that mm. are just really spammy. <laughs> um, I, I always find them really funny when I see them. Um, I think they, like someone keeps stealing my photo actually and like putting it in these like, really terrible ads and like, yeah, like every month or so I get someone like sending me a screenshot. They're like, did, did they pay you for this? Because <laughs> I feel like they didn't pay you. And I'm like, yeah, like people just really like this one photo of me. I guess it gets a lot of clicks. So they keep using it, uh, to promote their weird, like hot, horny moms near you or whatever. Right. <laughs> or, uh, this, this game will make you come in 60 seconds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Is there any recourse that you have for something like that? Um, if your if your image, your likeness is being used in advertisement um, on one of these sites, or is it pretty much just once it's there, it's there? Um, I think there would be recourse if I wanted to put a lot of effort into stopping it. Um, but I would basically have to call MindGeek um, and talk it out with them. I use a service that submits DCMA requests for me. Mm. Um and they said basically they couldn't really do anything about it, unfortunately, because uh, the way MindGeek's ads are served uh, is really complicated for them to figure out who to send the DCMA request to. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I would have basically had to spend hours on customer service complaining to them, basically, which is just not really... I haven't been in the mood to do. Yeah. I, I've just decided that it's something sort of funny, like, oh, like I'm on these weird porn ads, whatever. <laughs> but I mean, for if someone was like, you know, really not into that or like quit the industry and like wanted their face to l- no longer be out there, I can see it being 
really traumatic and terrible. Mm. Um, and it's, yeah, it makes, it would make it extra shitty that you have to, you know, jump through all these hoops and waste a bunch of time, uh, to, you know, take something down that's exploiting your image. Um, but that's pretty much mind geeks whole money-making mechanism. So, yeah, I was going to say like, it seems very convenient that mind geek is like, Oh, actually like the structure of our ads makes it really difficult for us to, uh, um, go after the people advertising, you know, i.e. the people paying us money. Um, and, and, and actually makes Mm -hmm. it really hard for you not to be exploited or for your images or your work not to be, uh, stolen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, that's pretty typical. Um, I mean, I've had so much content uploaded onto their various sites at this point. I pay $250 a month, actually, for a service that goes around and checks to make sure that people aren't pirating my content, basically. Mm. Yeah, they're actively costing me money every month because they won't stop stealing my my videos. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I was going to say, like... Yeah, like it, it it gets really expensive, right? Like you were talking about if someone wanted to leave the industry and wanted to have all of that scrubbed, then the only recourse is basically to pay a really expensive service to go around and do all of this for you. And you're saying like, yeah, yeah like you're ba- you, you, it's the way you're saying is like you basically have a subscription. You're paying rent every month to some service, um, not to scrub your image, but just to make sure people aren't pirating and stealing your content and your work. I mean, we can definitely later in the episode, I think, get more into like talking about SESTA-FOSTA. I'm also really interested to hear about your thoughts on things like OnlyFans and stuff. But before we do that, I would love to hear more about your own experiences in the Valley. Like what kind of clients have you had? Um, What kind of services do they, do you see them like tending to pay for or wanting more so? Um, Like I want to learn more from your point of view about like what it is like to work in the Valley as a sex worker and with tech, uh, tech people as clients. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you, you kind of get a really wide spectrum of people. Um, so for a while, uh, my specialty, uh, was doing a lot of pegging. Um, so that was very popular. Mm. Um, but it, you know, you really get, you get everything. I think the most common for people in the Bay area is definitely what we call, uh, GFE or girlfriend experience where it's just like, you know, hanging out for a little bit and then, you know, some sex that's pretty vanilla and then like cuddling and then heading out. Um, but yeah, they really want a lot of cuddling. Usually I think that's, that's something that's very different about my New York clients is that like, I definitely have New York clients that are into cuddling, but they they're way more likely to be like, Oh, I want to see you like during my lunch break. And then like head back to the office immediately. Like (laughs) after I come, like I'm just going to hop in the shower and go. Whereas I feel like in the Bay area, people really like, like, Oh, like I want to just like cling to you. And like, (laughs) when you leave, I'm going to like, not really let go of your hand. (laughs) Like, (laughs) yeah. Um, Hold on, but you're, yeah, you're, you're mean, humanizing yeah. these people now. We can't have any of that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it's, 
you f- you do feel bad for them, especially like, you know, you see the way some of these people are living. I mean, I I think the best part of my book actually is this one scene where I talk about one of my um, earliest clients who was a Google employee and just like, I mean, his apartment, he was like in his 30s, but he looked like he was like a teenage boy. Like he had a towel that had like, you know, brown stains on it, like in his bathroom, <laughs> like looked like it had never been washed. And I'm like, mm. you know, like he was trying to make it nice. Like he had like a dying house plant and like, you know, not, he had like really nice speakers. Right. But like, I'm just like, Good hire like a housekeeper. Organic. Like if you mm. can't, you know, like, you know, if you never want to wash anything, you know, like, but yeah, just like really, really sad. A lot of like really abysmal hygiene too. Like I think that was uh, just people not taking care of themselves. Yeah, like not taking care of themselves at all. Like that no one ever taught them, you know. And like yeah, like just not not cleaning in areas that you know you got to wipe and sanitize. Like uh, I was reading, you know, some Twitter thread about people finding these like Reddit relationship posts about people not wanting, like their husbands, like not wanting to like wipe their ass after they oh, poop yeah. because they think yeah. it's gay. <laughs> and people were just like, oh, this doesn't happen. I'm like, oh no, this definitely does happen. This 1000%. 1000% happens. Like I <laughs> tragically know this from experience. Fellas, is, is it gay to wipe your own ass? <laughs> <laughs> no, never mind. Yeah. I mean, the only sort of, I guess related experience I can say with that is like, I, I remember when my friend introduced me to bidets and then I became a shell and tried to introduce other people to it. And a lot of people would be like, why do you want like water squirting up your ass? And I was like, dude, come like, what are you, <laughs> you know, like not, not understanding or thinking through the hygiene, the hygiene of it. Right. Now it's yeah. like, you wouldn't, but I don't know. And I can see that definitely like Jeremy said, that at least he knew what the end of the towel was, was for his ass. And I definitely feel like there are a lot of people also you know, <laughs> in general, <laughs> but also in these, in, in Silicon Valley, I think it's interesting. I wonder if, that is something you also see in New York, just people who either they are not socialized to really know how to take care of themselves, or maybe they're just like pushed so much that they just care to, because it sounds like that, what that dude's, uh, that Google employee's house also is like an archetype, maybe lines up with like some of the other stuff we're talking about where it's like, okay, he has nice speakers, but like the living stuff in his house is dying and he's not taking care of himself. Yeah. There's some of that in New York. Um, but I think, uh, often it's people that are pushed too hard um, and just don't have time. Um, there, there are definitely some people who just straight up, you know, don't don't know how to flush the toilet or whatever. <laughs> um, I mean, the, but- the, the, the joke is right that like a lot of tech is like, you know, uh, there was this thing. I remember a headline. There's like the internet of things your mom won't do for you anymore, right? Like so much of tech and like yeah. so much of the gig economy is like, how do I put my mom on an app, right? The, like, like that's what Uber <laughs> yeah. is, right? Like I don't have my mom to drive me around. So that's what Uber does. I don't have my mom to make dinner for me. So that's what like Deliveroo or DoorDash gotta, is, right? You got to get Zizek on to talk through this, right? What's the psychoanalytic, <laughs> yeah. uh, what's the psychoanalysis of the gig economy? Yeah, there's some real like yeah. psychodrama, psychosexual stuff going on here. And honestly shocked. And I mean, maybe it's only because of uh, 
like legal reasons that there hasn't been this, you know, like, like we were joking earlier in the, at the beginning of the episode, right. kind of like, like sex as a service or like, you know, some like putting, putting you Liara, like on an app so you can be like on demand. Oh yeah. I mean, clients would joke about that all the time, you know, and they would be like, oh, like, it'd be great if there was just like an app where I could see like all of your availability and just like, you know, schedule it out or like, you know, have it automatically book you like once a week, you know? Um, yeah. Like sort of on demand thing. Um, I think, yeah, if, if the payment processing was an, was doable for that, I think they would. Uh, someone would have done it already. <laughs> for <like>, sure. <laughs> how would you feel about that, though? How would would you How would you feel about like being on some sort of on demand platform where someone could schedule it and and set in advance a time for both of y'all to meet? Um. So I, I think. Um, you know, there would be a lot of issues with it that are sort of typical issues that you see with any sort of gig economy labor. You know, like I do a lot of screening for my clients. Um, and I think any sort of middleman, there's going to be um, this pressure from them um, if they're taking a cut to, you know, have you be a little more lenient on the screening. There's a variety of sites that claim to do screening for you so that you don't actually get any of the client's information. And usually these do result in, you know, people getting arrested in stings or something else if the site has been compromised mm. or something like that. Um, yeah, I think it's the type of thing where, you know, if it was just some, like if I was able to use like Square's functionality to you know, do my own appointments independently on my site or whatever, you know, sort of like, like a hairstylist, you know, just Mm -hmm. using whatever generic thing available that might be fine. But uh, an app specifically for, you know, Uber for sex workers, I think would very quickly have a lot of really serious problems and probably result in someone dying sooner rather than later. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, yeah, because it's already a. I mean, we can get into this as well because I'm I am interested around like what this what the screening process is like because it is a very dangerous and risky job, right? And so you do have to go through a lot of caution um, to do this, which which was you know um, as Jeremy was talking about before, like a major issue with SESTA FOSTA, right? Like uh, restricting or or even preventing. Um, sex workers from using platforms like Backpage or Craigslist, uh, you know, to facilitate their jobs, facilitate their own safety, um, to secure their own mm-hmm. income, right? So, like, what was the screening process like for you? Did you have a lot of repeat clients? Was it a lot of kind of like word of mouth people, like other, uh, like, like you were talking about how you had a friend that was a dominatrix, right? With like kind of like vouching and, and things like that. Um, so a lot of my work definitely came just from advertising. Um, I know some girls who their clients will sort of refer them to their friends. Um, but I think that's relatively rare, at least for the type of clientele I was getting. They usually wanted to have more, uh, of an emotional connection with me. Hmm. Um, and so I think the idea that my, f- I would be fucking one of their friends would be pretty devastating for them, mm. honestly. So, uh, almost like, like you're, I think, like you're cheating on them in a way. Yeah. No, I think a lot of them would think about that. Like it, they would get really sad when they would think about me, um, you know, being with other people or anything like that. For me, it was definitely mainly like the advertising sites at first. Um, and then I set up like a Twitter and Instagram. 
um, and they ended up doing pretty well. And I, I think a lot of the industry has sort of transitioned to social media for advertising. And it's, you know, always this delicate dance of making it obvious that you do sex work, like having certain signals in your bio or whatever that make it clear that you do sex work without explicitly saying that you do it because it's just extremely likely that your account will get shut down if you make it too obvious or, you know, if God forbid you explicitly, you know, say like, Hey, you can fuck me for X amount of money. Then (laughs) you're you're basically instantly going to be booted. Um, Sesta Fosta, I think was really, um, very devastating for, um, a lot of sex workers because it really made it so that people couldn't screen clients um, mm. as easily. Mm-hmm. Um, like if uh, if you really look at it, um, SESTA FOSTA, you know, was supposed to be about people being trafficked, but in the language of the bill, it was just straight up about prostitution. Um, which a lot of the I went to lobby. Um, for uh, the sex worker lobbying day um, after SESTA FOSTA passed. And a lot of the people who voted on it, like I was in Nancy Pelosi's office talking with some of her aides and they were like, yeah, we heard about this, but we thought it was literally a trafficking bill, not a prostitution bill. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it really it really destroyed people's ability to to screen because when you have someone contacting you over the internet, um, you're able to collect information about them. Like I was very lucky and able to collect a lot of information because I had a lot of demand. So I would always get people's full name, usually their phone number to confirm that their full name was the one they were giving me. Mm. Um, and then I would be able to run them through. I had a, I eventually hired someone to do my screening for me and she would, you know, run them through criminal databases to make sure, you know, that they didn't have, you know, any sort of violent crime charges, um, or any blacklists from other providers, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and then often I would ask for references as well. So they would have to send me other girls that they had seen basically who would then vouch for them and say, yeah, like he's fine. He's not, you know, going to be violent or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it was pretty stringent for sure. You also be able to talk about, you know, this sort of move uh, to use trafficking language to try to um, pull people in to support bills that end up just cracking down on prostitution and sex workers. And we saw it most recently also with like the push um, with the, what was it, the Model Hub campaign that mm-hmm. um, culminated in the payment processors um, or uh, cracking down more and, and, and pushing Pornhub and the MindGeek, you know, entity to... Uh, pull back, uh, providing su- uh, support through, I think, MasterCard and Visa. Uh, Josh Hawley's bill or attempt to introduce a bill in Congress, you know, under the guise of stopping sex trafficking that would you know, essentially just crack down on sex workers and, you know, creators on you know, these on porn websites. You know, like how far back does this this language or this move to try to associate it with trafficking or to present it as an anti-trafficking push go? Or how consistent have you also seen it in the past few years as you've been, you know, organizing? Yeah. So there's, there was a really big push by Christian groups and, you know, uh, radical feminists of the, the negative sort, um, to really start pushing the trafficking narrative in the early two thousands, really. Um, I think there was actually some large conference, 
um, of basically like sex negative people who all got together and we're like, we really need to brand this as trafficking if we want to, you know, stop it. And of course, uh, the two different groups have their own personal ideological reasons for not wanting, um, sex workers to be around. Um, but I mean, sex trafficking is objectively bad, you know, like no one wants someone, I, I, I guess, you know, maybe the Epstein's of the world want people to be sex trafficked, but <laughs> yes. like most, most non-sociopaths uh, are against sex trafficking. <laughs> um, and so, you know, like people are like, oh yeah, you know, especially if it's branded as child sex trafficking, which SESTA-FOSTA, I believe, was uh, very heavily pushed as a anti-child sex trafficking law. Um mm. Yeah, so they've sort of been very successful in branding, um, you know, in-person sex work as being trafficking. And now they're really pushing to have porn in general being branded mm-hmm. as uh, as trafficking. And you sort of see that with Rashida Jones' uh, documentary she did about porn, um, where she basically took people in really shitty conditions um, and interviewed them and made the whole industry look terrible. Um, When in fact, you know, you can probably do that with literally any industry um, and take, you know, people in like the worst situations and make the entire industry seem pretty bad. Not to say that porn doesn't have its problems. Of course it does. And of course there are exploitative power structures in place, but um, a lot of those are aided by, uh, laws like this that prevent people from having more of an ability to organize or, um, you know, just do their jobs without the government coming in and trying to really control the way that they work. Yeah. Yeah. I think my, my, um, Uh, I I was going to say, I mean, I I think it gets back to a thing that we were talking about the the way I kind of framed it at the very beginning as well is that, uh, sex work does seem to be at the, at the middle of this overlap, um, between, yeah, like the, Mm -hmm. you know, the Josh Hollies of the world, uh, you know, the, these kind of conservative ideologues, the, the swerfs, right. The sex worker exclusive radical feminist. Um, but also like we see it a lot with a lot of like leftists as well, who are like, you know, sex work is, uh, inherent like alienating and exploitative and it's like yeah buddy like all labor is inherent under capitalism is inherently (laughs) alienating and exploitative but you're right like it seems like uh when these investigations happen and when people are comfortable to talk about the alienation of labor it seems like it's always sex work right not other forms of labor like working in a warehouse or working in a, a a mcdonald's or you know something like that it's like yeah, like there's way more common there's way more common forms of trafficking too. Like, you know, everyone wants to talk about sex trafficking because you know it conjures up this really vivid image, but no one wants to talk about people that are being trafficked to you know work on a tomato farm. Mm. Um, one of my clients actually, um, he was uh, a lawyer for um, a large grocery store chain. And he told me he he was like one of those clients that's really into sex workers' rights. Like there's definitely a type of client that's just like, oh, I want to talk about all the activism you do or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but we were talking about the branding of sex workers trafficking. And he was like, oh, man, you know, like this grocery store chain, like they were getting these tomatoes that were maybe, you know, 10 cents cheaper per pound. And then there was this big story about to come out 
about how they were sourcing their tomatoes from basically people that were enslaved in like Florida somewhere um, and being forced to harvest these tomatoes. Like literally like they had their passports all locked up Mm -hmm. and like, it was like a really terrible situation. And he basically had to fly down to the tomato farm and be like, look guys, like everyone's willing to pay 10 cents more for these tomatoes. Like, please just like pay your employees. Like we don't want to have this like really blow up in our faces, Mm -hmm. you know? And they're like, Oh, like, okay. Yeah. Like we can, (laughs) we can, we can get like, you know, people that aren't, trafficked and you know being like forced to harvest these tomatoes i guess sure yeah it's just got to hear a lot of really crazy stories like that <laughs> from people that are deep in the machine i used to bartend in new orleans and i have had friends that were dancers at uh, strip clubs in new orleans who also did sex work on the side but being a bartender in new orleans or especially a bartender in general you kind of get people open up to you a little bit more freely and they tell you things that you, you know, they wouldn't tell any other stranger. One of the, one of the things that I, I remember quite a bit is during a lot of the conventions, especially like the Southern Baptist convention, uh, a lot of the women that worked as dancers king at the barely legal, the, the hustlers barely legal club because all the, uh, you know, the preachers coming into town for the Southern Baptist convention would just roll in, you know, of course they're like, mm-hmm. uh, any other day, of the, any other time of the day, they're thumping their Bible and, you know, being God botherers and telling you're going to hell for, for being horny, you know, like for being horny <laughs> but on, the, on that side going and just like spending all this money at strip clubs. Um, it's just a, another side of like that, that type of hypocrisy of like, you know, you shouldn't be able to do this, but I'm going to, I'm going to come to you regardless. Have you ever had clients like divulge more, you know, like you were talking with the lawyer before, but like tech people giving you like, oh, this, this is going uh, public in a couple of weeks. You should uh, get in on the ground floor <laughs> trying to give you like, you know, some insight on what to invest in and shit like that. Oh yeah. People definitely gave me insider trading information. I never acted on it because I was just like, I don't want to, I don't want to <laughs> deal with this. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, people would definitely, you know, tell me things like all about their products or whatever. And sometimes I would gossip with my other like tech clients about it. Like I would sort of, you know, (laughs) I feel like in some ways I was like, you know, sort of brokering information for some of them, like being like, Oh, you should, you know, interview here. Like, I think they're really looking for someone, you know, like, Mm. but yeah, sometimes my clients were a little shocked about uh, certain, certain things that I knew. Um, But yeah, there would also be people who, you know, we're sort of confronting the fact that, you know, their job was pretty fucked. Like I had um, a client that was an executive um, at a really major tech company. He was like a corporate lobbyist, basically. We were like in some like fancy hotel room, like smoking weed in a bathtub. And he got really, really stoned. Um, and he was just sort of like talking about how, like he never imagined that he would be like using law in such a way to like make things worse for other people just so that his employer could like make more money. <laughs> I was just sort of like nodding, like, like, okay, man. Like, uh, like, like, yeah, like how does that make you feel? You know, like 
sort of therapisty, and he's like, he's like, wow, that just sounds really fucked up, doesn't it? I mean, and I was just like, yeah. yeah, yeah, that does sound fucked up. You know, like that absolutely sounds really fucked up. Like that's pretty shitty. Um, like, <laughs> men, men would rather get high in a bathtub with an escort than hire a therapist. See, <laughs> though, there would be some clients where I was like, maybe you should see a therapist, man. You know, like I think it would be good for you and they'd be like oh like i could never talk about my feelings with someone that i'm not sleeping with <laughs> or just like whoa like that in and of, it, of, uh, of itself is just like a lot to unpack but you definitely you know? gotta see you know a therapist if you're gonna close your <laughs> everyone like that yeah it's, it's funny you mentioned that there's a, a show that damn michael che from uh saturday night live he's kind of got like a little skit show on hbo mm-hmm. and he's got a bit where you think you think he's talking to a therapist but you turned out it's just a sex worker he's paid for and she's like i don't know why you're telling me all this do when are we having sex and he's like i'm not done telling you all my deep dark secrets <laughs> <laughs> yeah something like that also kind of you know reminds me i feel i have seen some people come on the precipice of epiphanies right of epiphanies about the what their work is doing about um you know the destruction that they're doing but they refuse to to go forward with it because they they like come to those realizations and moments where it's like they either way too vulnerable um and they like pull back and they're like oh shit okay never mind you know let me just like stuff that feeling deep down or it's with like someone who is not able to break whatever barrier they put up and i'm Curious if, like, you know, you think that with tech workers and of themselves, that any of them individually are ever like they're holding enough doubt at any point where, like, if they had, if they had a support system, if they had a healthy sort of communication style with other people, that they might not be doing that the work, the work that they're doing, or that it only bubbles up in these situations and then they, you know, they push it back down. I think there's, yeah, there's definitely different types of people, like that corporate lobbyist definitely could have retired and had more than enough money for the rest of his life. But I think he was really attached to the power and the prestige at the end of the day. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, wanted to be able to hire really expensive escorts and travel all over the world, you know, sort of be able to say fuck you to anyone. Um, Then on the other hand, um, you have people um, that, you know, are in a more precarious spot. Like I have friends that are trans women um, who work in tech and it might be really hard for them to get another job that will pay for any of like the medical care that they need that, um, you know, would help cover transition, like with the, the nice fancy like tech insurance or anything like that. And so, you know, it's hard to say to someone like that, like, oh, like, you should do the ethical thing and quit, you know, especially if they're working at one of the more like benign startups, you know, well, you know, at a certain point, like what can you do? Um, And then there are other people um, definitely where like they are doing something that's just like really fucked. I wanted to also ask your your view around around platforms like OnlyFans and Patreon and these kinds of things that are, you know, like 
providing a different way of doing sex work, right? Of like, like selling that, of selling that content. You also mentioned, you know, on, um, having these kind of like signals on social media that are like, you know, Hey, like Mm -hmm. I, I do sex work without coming out and being like, here's my prices. Here's my services. Here's the number to call me on. Um, it seems like OnlyFans, uh, like having an OnlyFans is, is one of those big kind of signals. Um, but of course there's also like all these problems with OnlyFans, right. And like, you know, it's another middleman that's taking a huge percentage and a huge cut. Um, so I, I wonder like, do you, do you, or have you used OnlyFans? Like what's like, what's your kind of view of things like that? Um, so OnlyFans, um, was started by the same person who started the site, my free cams. Um, so he has some experience, I think, um, in running adult sites. Um, I think he was really shocked by how, how well it took off though, uh, from what I've heard. Um, honestly, the percentage that OnlyFans takes is really reasonable compared to what a lot of other adult content sites take. For example, ManyVids, um, another very popular site, takes a 40% cut, Jesus. which is really, yeah, that's that's a lot. Um, so OnlyFans only takes 20%, um, and probably 11% of that is just going to uh, their payment processor. Mm. Um, so credit cards charge extra high rates for anything that they think of as risky, and adult content falls into that. So because OnlyFans allows adult content. Um, I think actually they have two separate payment processors too, like one for people who do adult content and another for people who do anything that's safe for work. Right. Um, And they charge people who do safe for work stuff a lower rate just because um, they are charged less on, on their end. Do you think something like OnlyFans, like overall, has that been a really good improvement. I mean, obviously there's been a lot of problems. Like I forget the celebrity, right. Who like joined OnlyFans uh, and, and like what, like crashed the site or something like that and caused a bunch of big problems. But like overall, what have you seen that as like a, as a good thing? And I, and I feel like I, I don't, I honestly don't know how long OnlyFans has been around, but it does seem um, I've, I've at least noticed on Twitter, it's like, a lot of people seem to have OnlyFans. Like it's like really common now for people to kind of have it as this like like a side hustle or a side gig, right? It's like, oh, I also do my OnlyFans. Yeah. So I think it really took off after um, the pandemic started. Mm-hmm. Um, so OnlyFans was definitely a thing. Um, like maybe I want to say a year before the pandemic is when um, it launched and people started using it. Um, and people were already getting pretty excited about it, but a lot of people didn't start really using it until the pandemic. Um, and I think because a lot of people were stuck inside, uh, people just started signing up like crazy. Um, and I have guy friends who told me, they're like, yeah, like it was great. Like, you know, that like hot girl you follow on TikTok was like posting nudes and would like maybe chat with you, you know, like really into it. And then, um, I think, as the market got really saturated with hot girls or like whoever else creating an OnlyFans and also not necessarily like delivering quality content um, and sort of ripping people off, then it sort of died down Mm. um, until people got their stimulus checks. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And then people got some money. It's like, all right, Um, that's that's a stimulus for sex workers, OnlyFans. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I have a lot of friends who don't, who aren't necessarily sex workers who um, started OnlyFans during the pandemic, basically because, you know, they just needed the money um, and whatever other like side hustles they would usually do were no longer really accessible. The ch- changes, there have been some changes that have emerged over time on only OnlyFans, uh, you know, TOS or restricting the ability of content creators who are doing stuff that's not safe for work to put it out there and get money back for it. Um, are these changes motivated by the similar far right wing uh, campaigns that uh, focused on Pornhub or are they more so motivated by the sense of the founders of the team or the executive leadership or team um, of how things are changing regular in the regulatory landscape or is it, you know, something else entirely? Um, I think it's, it's all kind of affecting it. Um, I mean, so the far right people end up usually having a lot of legislative power. Um, they're able to lobby pretty effectively often Mm -hmm. and are pretty good at mounting really intense campaigns, uh, against companies, uh, putting a lot of pressure on them. Uh, so that's a big thing. Um, and then, yeah, as these companies are sort of, they sort of have to keep you know, keep an eye out for new legislation. Like I know a year before SESTA-FOSTA passed, people sort of could sense that it was coming and a lot of tech companies started cracking down like even before the law, the specific law was written um, because they there was just sort of something in the air and people could tell that there was about to be a crackdown on adult content and make everything a little more restrictive. Yeah, I think it's a combination of everything. And then, of course, credit card processors um, also. They're probably the the weakest link, honestly. Um, they're very susceptible. Like Visa and MasterCard pulling out of Model Hub. Um, it's because it's, you know, no law has to be passed. These organizations, far-right organizations, often just need to pressure uh, credit card companies um, by saying, oh, like Visa and MasterCard support sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. And then if they just shout that loudly enough on enough like television channels, then often, you know, they can be pressured into pulling out of whatever site they're on. Yeah. For listeners, you might not know the, uh, the model hub also campaign or the, the campaign, you know, partly in organized by this group, Exodus Cry, which is far right wing group. And it, organized, you know, a campaign that was associating Pornhub strictly with uh, sex trafficking, right? But also consisted of collaborations with like, you know, Josh Hawley and trying to craft legislation or advise him on legislation, right? And then I think one big push that came was these series of columns or op-eds from Nicholas Kristof in the New York Times, right, that were focusing in on people, teenagers whose videos had been put onto Pornhub and were pretty much unable to be removed in addition to the prevalence of underage content on there. And that, I think, was sort of the perfect distillation of like what uh, Exodus Cry talks about, right? The idea of pornography being an inherently immoral an unjustifiable thing, but you can't immediately say we have to ban porn. So you you talk about circumstances where people are unable to remove themselves from pornography websites, or you talk about sex trafficking, right? And I think that that has been like a huge, or it seems like that has been a huge push also in shifting 
the landscape shifting, like, you know, the pressure onto these payment processors, Mm -hmm. shifting the payment on legislators, shifting the payment and shifting the discussion in the way that people talk about this in public in general. Right. Yeah. Um, Moving the Overton window is definitely mm -hmm. uh, something they've been really focused on. Um, Mm -hmm. And yeah, another big thing is people in the industry really hate Pornhub. I mean, they mm-hmm. make, mm-hmm. or now I think it's verified content only, but mm-hmm. um, they and MindGeek's uh, collection of tube sites um, for a long time made all of their money basically from pirated content. And so, you know, it's really hard to, it's a really like tricky situation to navigate. Um, I remember I got a lot of interviews um around the time of the model hub stuff and people were asking me, you know, like, Oh, like, you know, like, are you pro porn hub? Like, do you think they should not be shut down? Um, and I'm like, well, you know, I have also been, you know, victimized by porn hub, you know, like they have, you know, literally profited off of pirating my content. Um, so no, I don't think, um, they should be allowed to continue with that business model. Um, because it is way more, easy to take advantage of, you know, uh, Mm -hmm. other porn sites, you know, if they are verifying all their own content, it's all stuff that they produce. It's way harder for people to sort of disseminate these abusive videos that people didn't consent to or anything like that, because there's a really clear pathway like, oh, this company did it. They're making money off of it. If we shut them down, then um, the video can't really be disseminated as easily anymore. If it's you know, something where anyone can upload anything like a YouTube, basically, then it becomes way harder to stop that content from spreading anywhere. Um, and I think that's, you know, this really perfect crystallization of the tension uh, between, you know, people who advocate for an open, free internet and people who want, uh, you know, harsher DCMA laws and everything. And I feel like I can see both sides of it, you know, where, yeah, of course you want it to be easy for people to put content out there. Piracy is a serious concern and not just because, um, you know, of corporations not being able to make money off of, you know, their Netflix show or whatever, but um, because uh, you can really easily spread non-consensual or abusive content. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it makes me think as well um, around like, and you know, we we don't need to dive su- like super deep into this, but you know, you know, there's the the new Safe Tech Act, which is a, a bill sponsored by Senator uh, Mark Warner. In these fucking like asinine ways, these bills are a safe tech is an acronym that stands for safeguarding against fraud, exploitation, threats, extremism, and consumer harms. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> what a mouthful. I, I, I want to mm. meet the, the consultant that was paid, you know, six figures to come up with that fucking acronym. <laughs> I don't, uh, don't want to meet But him. it's another one of these things like SESTA FOSTA, uh, you know, that is trying to use um, and reform Section 230 of the Communications Decency Mm -hmm. Act, right, Um, which is nominally about, like, you know, protecting free speech and offering these, like, legal protections against liability for online platforms and websites for the content that's posted on on their platforms. But, like, in much the same way, we we constantly, we see these, these bills coming out where it's like, you know, these people don't don't want to say what they really mean, 
right? Which is like, Mm -hmm. I want to make sex work illegal or, you know, I want to abolish this, this industry altogether. Instead, they're like, oh, actually Mm -hmm. it's about legal liability or it's about free speech or or whatever, but, or sex trafficking, right? They, they always come up with these, these roundabout ways um, to do and like bury the harm and bury the consequences for, for people like you, um, your, you know, the people in your industry um, who are like, hey, this is really going to impact my livelihood. And, and, and they always rely on, oh, well, that's not, that wasn't our intention. You know, fingers crossed. That's not what we meant to happen. It's, it's really hard to talk about sex work in a rational way with people um, because it's so easy for people to drag the discourse into this area uh, of like, child sexual abuse, which obviously is terrible and nobody wants that to be happening. Um, but it's a really easy way to get people riled up and pass things quickly because, um, you know, obviously no one wants child porn Mm -hmm. out there floating around on the internet. Um, yeah, we're going to take the brave and bold stance here of being an anti Epstein <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we, we are against Epstein. <laughs> so I know, uh, I know you got to head out soon. So before we do that, before we wrap up, I do want to ask you, tell us, uh, some, tell us about your forthcoming book, um, Horror of New York, Confessions as a, of a Sinful Woman. Um, tell us about, tell us about the book. Tell us about what's, what's in the book and, and why everybody needs to go out and, and pick up a copy, pre-order it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I wrote it, um, because I really wanted there to be a book that dealt with sex work in a more nuanced way. I feel like there's a lot of books that either glamorize it or portray it as this really terrible, fucked up thing. Um, so I wanted to write a bit about, you know, why I decided to go into the industry, like my motivations for getting into it and um, just explore how it's, you know, like any other industry, there's really terrible exploitative parts Um And I did have some pretty negative experiences, but also, you know, I did have some fun. um, And it is a job that overall I would say I enjoyed doing. Um, And uh, yeah, if anyone wants to hear about some of my crazy sexual exploits, uh, there's a lot of that in there too. So you get a nice mixture of, you know, sort of like memoir, coming of age story, uh, some politics and then some nice horny content for for everyone else. <laughs> Good. We can start building our 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 psychosexual profile of uh, people that were your clients in Silicon Valley and in New York. <laughs> <laughs> yep, yep. Lots of lots of fun stories about that. I think also one last questions I have is, you know, you talked a little bit about the Overton window shifting with these right-wing groups. And I've also been seeing on the left, at least, or ostensibly leftists, right, talking about, you know, I'm thinking of like a firm, but other related groups, uh, sort of like, you know, sex worker exclusionary feminism and the idea that all sex work is needs to be fought against and pushed against and eradicated or gotten rid of. And that it's trafficking in one form or another. Do you think that, I mean, is this an outgrowth of that far right tendency? Is this a tendency that you've seen that persists sometimes on the left and comes out? Or is it just something that's thriving in the moment now that the far right has been able to 
get some of its arguments to hold. Yeah. I mean, I think there is a lot of sex negativity on the left. Um, and there always has been, um, I think especially people that have experienced sexual trauma. Um, I see a lot of women who, you know, have felt coerced into having sex react really strongly to sex work. Um, and there are a lot of sex workers that are, you know, under communism would, would want to see it abolished. Um, and I, I totally get where they're coming from, you know, for them, it's something that is really traumatic and they have had an overwhelmingly negative experience with, and it's hard for them to imagine people doing sex work in a way that feels consensual. Um, but then there are people like me where, you know, I really enjoyed aspects of it. And I think because, um, I was able to come to sex work from a sort of like sexual therapist place almost where, you know, for, for a bit, like, you know, a lot of my clients were virgins or people who struggled with intimacy and I was able to sort of help them through it. And also, you know, I'm just a big horn dog. So it's not really like a big deal for me to, you know, fuck a stranger, like, you know, been there, done that. Like, um, and I think in my book, one of my, one of my lines I was proudest of was like, I'd rather, you know, have bad sex than get a bad haircut, you know, like <laughs> in terms of like <laughs> shitty intimate experiences, like someone giving me like a really ugly haircut would probably make me feel worse than, you know, having like, you know, some shitty, you know, terrible sex. Like I'd be like, all right, like that was bad, but you know, whatever. <laughs> you don't have to see it in the mirror the next day and for the next couple of weeks. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've my barber push my line back and that just, that stays with you for weeks yeah. and weeks and weeks. It does. It does. <laughs> yeah. Whereas like, yeah, if you're like, well, I didn't get off and like, that was kind of awkward. And like, you know, maybe they said some weird shit that I was mm-hmm. like, uh, like, you know, you can sort of move on. You're like, all right. Like we're, mm-hmm. we're going to move past that. But I know for some people, you know, sex is way more intimate and intense, but yeah, no, I think it's, you know, for people that were like, sex is really precious and they can't imagine mm-hmm. sex not being precious for everyone. I can see, I can totally see why sex work would be like this, you know, awful thing, but you know, for someone who doesn't think of sex as being necessarily precious or super spiritual or something, just like, you know, fun, fun activity, uh, it's just different for me, I think. Great. Well, thank you so much, Liara. This this has been a really, really awesome conversation. Um, and yeah, I, I want to thank everybody for listening. Again, we'll throw links into in the episode description for Liara's book um, and also Liara's Twitter. You should definitely follow Liara um, at Liara Rue. And uh, yeah, you and, and everybody, thank you for listening. You can find us um, at patreon.com slash this machine kills, where we are also, you know, we'll giving you a, uh, another episode every single week over there. Um, and we've got a, we've got a good one coming up um, for this, this premium episode. So until then, uh, thank you for listening and we will see y'all then later. Adios.
Thank you.